You might think you know Hugh Sheridan, a four-time Logie Award-winning actor who's played starring roles on shows like House Husbands and Pack to the Rafters. He's also the number one ticket holder for the Port Adelaide Football Club and spends his time working between homes in LA and Sydney. He's also an accomplished international jazz singer, ballet dancer, film director, screenwriter and passionate human rights advocate. But what you might not know is that there is a deeper, hidden, vulnerable and very human side to Hugh Sheridan, which he now wants to share publicly. In this episode of Human Cogs, we explore Hugh's lonely childhood, his engagement at the young age of 17 to a woman, his early experiences at NIDA, where he then fell passionately in love with a man, and his ongoing quest to assert the need to not be defined by labels, but instead by the whole and compassionate human that he is. Hugh believes that we have become too focused on unhelpful and binary definitions of who we are across the facets of our lives and invites us all to challenge the way we talk to each other to move towards a more accepting and united view of humanity without bias and the impact of boxing each other in. He also reveals the drawbacks of fame and living life in the public spotlight and a life-changing moment in India when he came face-to-face with himself as an infant, small child, adult and ageing man and was finally able to accept himself as the boy he was, man he is and human he seeks to be. What he does know is that you don't need a star on Hollywood Boulevard to say that you are someone and that it's now time for Hugh to sit in his own skin, accept himself and as George Michael once said to him, just sing what you want to sing. This isn't a story about sexuality, but rather about accepting ourselves and wanting others to do the same. Here's our chat with the very human Hugh. Hugh, one of the things that I always say is that we are all made up of parts and sometimes our parts align and other times they tug of war with each other. Tell us about some of the facets that make up Hugh Sheridan. That's a great, great start. And also thank you both for having me on Human Cogs. I'm very excited to be on. I like the way that you put that because I think that we are made up of so many different parts and there's so many bits that contradict. Also, you're, you're ever-changing as well. You know, there's lots of parts of me that I, I mean, I look back and I've changed so much. And then there's also parts of us that remain. The changing parts that have always been the most interest of me because that's been the exploring, the trying to work out who I am. It can also be as simply put as sometimes being someone that's an actor and a singer and then they find out that you dance as well. But most people usually say to me, what do you like more? Like, are you more of a singer or an actor? Then, you know, I did also go to the Australian Ballet School when I was younger and they're like, so, but like, which one is your thing? And I always say, well, I don't really have a preference because it's the same instrument. I'm using my body and I'm doing the same thing with every discipline you're just trying to move people you're trying to tell a story and you're using your body to do it whether it's through voice or through acting or through dancing or when you're doing them simultaneously and I think people always want to sort of work out which one you are and what I came to the conclusion of was that I was all of them Another good way to sort of analyse it is I remember I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and I came outside Walgreens and I saw Frank Sinatra's star. 
And I thought, how do you like that? I mean, this superstar and his star is just outside Walgreens and it's just been like such a crappy spot to have it. <laughs> then I saw another one. He had another star and then I realised he had four stars. He had one for television, one for film, one for stage and one for recording music. And I thought that's perfect. When people ask me now what I'm going to, you know, like what, who do you want to be or something, I always say Frank Sinatra because he, he did it all and he didn't care. You know, he, there was never, I don't think we should ever limit ourselves to the endless possibility of what tomorrow brings because I don't know who, what tomorrow is. None of us do. One day we were living normal life and the next minute it was COVID mm. and we changed and adapted to the world around us and that's what humans do. So there's many different parts to me, but, um, I'm ever changing and sometimes I contradict myself. So, but I'm okay with that. I like it. We I all like, do. I'm embracing the unknown. We all contradict each other. And I think that's one of the key messages. It is for me and for people that I work with and talk to and listen to and observe. And I think actually the example that you've just given of Frank Sinatra speaks so beautifully to an example of people wanting to box us. Um, they're yeah. saying to you, are you a singer more than you're an actor? Are you a dancer more than you're a singer? Yeah. It's fasc- fascinating that it's the it's the external need, not, not necessarily internal, to make sense of someone through labels. They used to talk about the triple threat or what are you? You're probably a, a quadruple threat with all of your talents. Is it partly about the business you're in that people are looking to put you in that singular kind of vertical? Lots of people are good at lots of different things and that I don't sort of want to stop there either. Like I don't want to stop at singing, dancing and acting. Like I'm moving on to directing and other things. You know, there's lots of – I like playing instruments. I like learning new things. Like they're all just facets of me but they're all equally as important. Like when I come into a country now, you know, it always says, what's your job? And I used to just sort of write whatever I was doing at the time. So if I was acting, I'd say actor. If I was doing more music at the time, I'd say a singer. Eventually, I went, what am I actually doing? I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. I like to entertain people. So I started writing entertainer. And then one time coming into the States, the guy looked at me and he said, what are you, a male stripper? And I was like, <laughs> no, I said, like, I work in entertainment. It's like a, and it sort of got worse. And I was like, no, 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 like, I'm an entertainer. I sing, I dance, I act. And he's like, oh, like you're a showman. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so it's just, you know, like everyone's always trying to box you and work out which box you tick. I'm just designed to tick them all. I do, and I appreciate that labels support us so far because when you look at where we've come from, it was very important for people to own who they were and, and get out there because of the inequality. And we're still... People are still fighting for for freedom in so many parts of the world. I mean, I started working on this um, project called the Human Renaissance Project a little while ago, which is about basically analysing the way that we talk about each other, the way that we hear each other, and the words that we use to describe each other. And and a lot of that revolves around pre-existing labels that have already been set up by political systems and uh, institutions from long before we were born, it came from the interview, well, the, the idea that I was ready to tell my story and become more transparent about who I am. And that purely came from during COVID and I was writing this film and I, 
my dad got sick and I suddenly had all my diaries because I had a lot of stuff stored at his house. And so it all sort of came to me at the same time. And I'm, I'm in lockdown and I'm reading my old diaries and I kind of remembered who I was and I remembered who I am. I'd forgotten and I'd forgotten that once, you know, years ago, I was sort of a lot braver when I was like 16 as opposed to now and how difficult it is to go out into the world and try and work out who you are and go for that. And I was kind of like determined and quite strong. And then I, I felt sort of pressured into being in, into a box, which I allowed myself to get into. So I, I became aware of all this and, and that's when I started the Human Renaissance Project. That was before the Black Lives Matters movement sort of kicked off. It, uh, it was before all the protests and when that did start, I called my friend who I'm working uh, on the project with and we were just saying, are you seeing this? Like, are you seeing what's on TV? And I suddenly realized that the Human Renaissance Project is so much more than a gen, like a sexuality thing or a gender thing. It, it's actually all inclusive because mm. the words, we might have outgrown a lot of the words and we just need to talk about it. And I don't have all the answers, but I'd like to try and help mm. if I can moving forward. Can we go back a little bit, Hugh, before we go forward? Yeah. You're talking about this brave 16-year-old that you've um, mm. reconnected with after finding past letters and diaries. What led you to living in this box without oxygen and light? Well, it was, I didn't feel brave when I was 16. I didn't feel brave at all. I felt very much the opposite. And I felt, you know, very small and I I left Adelaide and I was sort of studying alone in Melbourne. I just lived, like I just sort of got out there and I did it. I met this beautiful girl. And we got engaged very young and, and it was sort of like, you know, we were too young to sort of even tell her family, our families because she was from this Italian family. We were worried. And anyway, she ended up breaking my heart. I went to NIDA and it was only there uh, that I first met a guy that I liked. And I sort of thought, brilliant, like this is great. I actually do like guys because all my life I'd been teased sort of for being gay because I'd did dancing and singing and stuff like that, but I never felt it. But finally I did. So I just like was really out and loud and proud and, and happy. And I was also, I'd gotten over my heartbreak. And then some mentors there told me basically that if you ever say your sexuality and if, if I didn't pull my head in and stop letting people know who I was with, then I would never work outside you know, when I got into the real world. And that really annoyed me. And I I actually became outer and louder and prouder just despite them. And we do this piece at drama school when you're in your second year called a movement piece or a personal story. Mm. My movement piece, because I'd come from the ballet school, uh, mine was the last one. It goes for about half an hour. I used Swan Lake as sort of a metaphor, the black and the white swan, the two different parts. It's usually played by the same dancer. But for me, it was more like this struggle between do I like guys or girls and also not being able to say who you are, even when it takes you that long to work it out. I mean, I had thought when I was at school that maybe it would be easier if I did like guys. And I really sort of like thought about it and I was just, so in love 
with this girl. This is at high school now. Mm. It's just very confusing. And I realize now, looking back, that that is bravery in itself to go out and take those to to take those choices and to be open mm. to actually allowing people to come into your life and that you can fall in love with many different people for many different reasons, be it their gender or whatever it is. Some people inspire you on a mental level and you fall in love with them through through that pathway. It's not always about sex, mm. you know. Well, not with me anyway. I ended up with my heart broken again and then I, I ended up back with a girl but I was too embarrassed to tell anyone because Basically, I, I'd made such a fuss about being with a guy and I, I was embarrassed because I thought, I suppose that means that I just don't know. You know, you feel like people sort of say, oh, you were just confused or you can't like both or you, you, you know, you're just, I even someone said that I was greedy, which I thought was quite cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're just greedy. The, or you can eat smorgasbord of, of love. I know, everyone, everyone's on the planet. <laughs> You're all welcome. Um, and I just, when I got to uh, cast on Pack to the Rafters, so those teachers were wrong, by the way, because mm. I was, I was like pretty out there. And I still got cast. It, they just said to me, Do you want to talk about your private life? They were aware of the fact that I'd been with both men and women. And uh, I just really didn't know what the answers would be. And I thought, if I pick a label now, that's it. Mm-hmm. So they'll write that name, that word after my name forever for every interview. It'll say, you know, like Keisha and like whatever it is. So I just thought, I'll just keep it private. I'll just keep that to myself and I'll work that out. And, and I did. And I loved, like, I mean, I, I kept it private and I haven't worked it out, <laughs> but um, I've, I'm learning more and more that I don't think we ever work it out. But I did find that also there was merit in having a nice privacy to your relationship as well. Like having that as something that was just shared between me and my partner and my friends and family also felt very nice. So you, you're talking about a few issues there. One is the, the public and private when you're in a, uh, a high-profile role and you were award-winning, Logie yep. award-winning and you've done so many amazing things um, in a public domain. But something's coming up for me as I'm listening to you. I remember doing um, a segment on my talkback radio that I do and we were talking about racism Mm-hmm. The story was someone was in a queue in a post office, a young person, and they witnessed horrific racism and slurs at the postmaster behind the counter or Mr. I don't know if it was a male, but the person running the, the, the um, post office. And the question that came into bay during this radio segment was what, what should we do if we witness something that makes us uncomfortable? And this was a racism story, but it could have been sexuality. It could have been anything. The main focus of the conversation became, do you need to speak up if that is a belief that you hold? And if you don't speak up, in some way, are you complicit? And as I'm listening to you tell your personal story, Hugh, it's hard to tease those apart. Do you have a thought on that as to if you don't speak up? I do. I do because I'm experiencing that right now. Mm. So that's exactly what's going on. I think that First of all, people should always put their safety first. So if someone is like enraged and out of control in a gas station, it's more about, well, making sure that the person behind the counter or in the post office or whatever, that they're safe and that you are safe because Mm -hmm. that person could be total loopy. 
However, I have been experiencing just recently very awkward but needed conversations with people that are friends of mine. And this is more to do with Black Lives Matters than my own personal story. But where Australians are reluctant to, it's very easy for them to point the finger at America and say, well, we don't have that problem here. And I go, but we do. I, I actually had this uh, conversation just the other night when I was watching the second debate and I was watching it with a beautiful friend of mine. She's um, from Greek background. She's in her, gosh, she must be in her 50s. And she's, she was saying, but I don't think Australia's racist. And I said to her, uh, we actually, t- I talked to her uh, for a long time about it because, and my, and my other friend was there and she said, Let's not talk about this. And I said, no, we have to because this is how we change. And I also know that my other friend is smart. And I also knew that I could get to the bottom of this with her and that that's me helping. That's me not being complicit. And it was an awkward and tough conversation. I've had a few of them with some friends in Sydney recently where I have to just slowly, calmly talk to them. And with this friend in particular, we ended up discovering through our conversation that she was actually teased at school and called a wog. Mm -hmm. That was something that really struck me when we were talking. And I said, do you think that potentially part of the reason that you think your reluctance to, to see any racism in your own backyard or in Australia is because you were put in a box at a very young age and that you've just learned to live in that box and you're actually thinking more Australian, like Australian in quotation marks, this idea that we don't have these problems here, that they belong in America, when actually, if you look at the figures, we do have social injustice with Indigenous people in Australia. I mean, the figures are astonishing when you think that they only make up 3% of our population and how many are incarcerated. It sounds like there's a not a crusade, but there's a lot coming up for you around wanting to right wrongs and there's a very deep Mm. sense of social justice that you have. Where's that all come from? I don't know why or like, like, I mean, I've, I've always been very much wanting, pushing for equality and out marching for everyone, whatever those rights are, I will be there. I will support you. More and more, I guess, I realised that a lot of the, well, virtually everything that we're talking about revolves around people being labelled, be it racism, sexism, whatever that is. It could be, you know, religious. There's a lot of friction there because labels, why they bring groups together, they also separate us as a common human society on earth. Uh, This idea that we could all sort of look at each other and see more humanness and more togetherness than separation. But a lot of the separation is created by labels. And that's I totally appreciate where they come from because I actually really admire people that say this is who I am and they have that label and that I love that and I and I don't sort of feel that so I also sort of look to them and go you know I just feel different about it because I I haven't been able to find one but then through covid I sort of came to this conclusion that I I was like well can't I just be human mm-hmm. like I was like can't I just be a living breathing human being who's not labelled but just sort of going through and being all the different things that you can be and I'll just keep exploring and growing and not pick one and just be a human evolving through my life journey, ever-changing and 
you know, with no expectation. Hugh, is there a certain amount of pressure? Like, it's absolutely your right to say that you share what you want to share and that you can reserve some parts of yourself and your life which is just yours alone and you don't need to justify mm-hmm. it or express it to anybody. But because of the particular industry that you're in, personal yeah. brand is a huge part of that, obviously, and you, you know, winning work, getting work, putting yourself out there, it, it's really difficult. You know, there's such a blending there of personal and, mm-hmm. and private. Um, is there a certain amount of pressure that where you do have to accept that you are on a public stage and that people want more of you than just face value? They want to know deeply who you are and do you accept that there's a... There's a, there's a tricky friction there for you. Yeah, oh, 100%. I mean, I felt enormous pressure, especially when I was first cast on Pact of the Raptors. I mean, I was only like 22, and there was a lot of a lot of pressure. I mean, I went through hell in that first couple of years. I felt really stalked almost by some journalists, and I was set up in a couple of occasions, like it was very scary. I became sort of agoraphobic and I felt like I just wanted to be inside and I didn't want to go out to events. I didn't like, and things that, you know, I was supposed to go to, I would just be in, feel sick on the way, knowing that there were these people that really just wanted to know everything about me. And, and because I had been fairly, as I said, out and proud when I was at NIDA, there was also a lot of people that, knew as well like I mean I was going out and stuff when I was at drama school to um, openings of theatre shows and things like that so people were sort of aware and because I would be there with my partner and all that sort of thing but then once you're in this public domain they want to get this scoop and say that you're this or that but if you don't if you're sort of not sure who you are like in my case I wasn't sure at all I didn't want to say anything, but I felt enormous pressure. And I think there's always going to be a place for that because some people are very different from me and that's completely fine. Some people, their partnership or their relationship becomes part of their brand. They're two famous people that get married and then they, you know, sell homewares and things, you know, and so it's different. Their open book relationship is, public domain and that's their choice I think we moving forward I hope that people will give a break to those who don't talk about it because maybe they just don't feel like talking about it and also a a partnership is two people and one person might want to share their story very publicly and the other person may want to remain very private so that then becomes an issue between those two humans about how they'll navigate that yeah, and I've been in situations where that's, that's the case as well. In fact, looking back, when I first did come on to Pack the Rafters, my partner at the time didn't, that also was not okay with them. So there was consideration and duality in the, in the decision that it's just best not to talk about it. And I've enjoyed that. I've really liked that when I go into interviews and things, I can talk about you know, whatever's going on or whatever whatever it is, but not have to sort of talk about someone else. In my personal opinion, I sort of think some of the things that you endure by becoming sort of famous or having your life out in the public is not nice. You know, a lot of people think that they want to be famous, but I can tell you right now, I'm talking about the other side of it. Mm. There's a whole 
other part of what that feels like to be famous that's very difficult. And I think virtually most people will tell you that it's not fun when, when everyone knows or that you have to watch where you are, what you're doing, what you say all the time because people at the next table are aware of who you are. I would never want my partners to, to just have to be part of that automatically just because they're dating me. They should still get to have their life just because I chose to work in an industry where, where that's gone, where that freedom disappears. That shouldn't mean automatically that whoever I date has to experience that same sort of life. What's the perfect gig for you? What, what, what job would invite you to bring out all of these parts? All of the different, like I said before, all of the different facets of um, being an entertainer that I've found, and I'm, you know, lucky that I can sing, you know, they're all, they all allow me to do something different. But I'm really looking forward to next year, my film, The Dance. It's a film about a young boy from Adelaide who goes to the Australian Ballet School and on the way starts to work out a bit more about who he is. And it's a film... A lot of it's set in St. Patrick's Cathedral. I used to go to church about, I think, four times a week back then because I was so lonely and I felt connected to my grandparents when I was there. But it's, it's, it's a film that I think will allow me to do the best. I'm going to direct it and I wrote it. I won't be in it, but I think from that vantage point, I think I'll be able to do some of my best helpful work, some best human work. Is it also, is it a coming of age story? Do you think this is a chance for you to reclaim who you are? Totally, it's a coming of age story. And it was through writing the film and all the different characters that I, I that's, that's how I remembered who I was. That's how I decided that it was time for me to share this story about my personal story because I was like, that's what, Little Hugh would want to, would have wanted me to do. He wouldn't have wanted me to feel constricted or feel like I was having to, you know, bait to other people or or shut down parts of myself. He wouldn't want me to feel like that. So I remembered that, and then I was like, then and also, you know what? I don't think the film I would be able to do the film as much justice if I didn't start to work on the side about human rights and and that's the one thing that sort of ties all of the different topics that we've been talking about today given that it could be ethnicity gender sexuality humans the key word that ties them all together and that's what we're sort of fighting for and i think the film is also very much about that the film i will give you a little scoop the film, when the film starts it says says, this film is dedicated to your 16-year-old self and any young person watching. You are okay. You are enough. The best is yet to come. Trust me. Mm, it's just beautiful, Hugh. I think it's, um, you know, as a psychologist, really you're talking about some pretty deep therapeutic um, dynamics and exchanges that you're actually having with yourself and that's who we need to have the conversation with. So thank you for sharing little Hugh and 16-year-old Hugh and entertainer showman Hugh and human Hugh. I went to India last year and I was in a meditation and I had this incredibly visual, I, you know, I wasn't a really good meditator at all, but I, um, I was good with guided meditation. But when you're in India, you're in these 
massive temple and there was a lot of meditating, but there's lots of chanting and there's lots of noise and sort of you go through and it goes for hours. So you go through these different waves. You know, three days in, I was sort of seeing things and letting, allowing my mind to go on this, these journeys. And, and I was sort of, you'd become unaware because eventually you just let go after you've, you know, your bum's hurting for ages, your back hurts, all this sort of thing. You're going, when is this going to end? But after a, a long time, you start to just, your body starts to vibrate because the noise just goes through it. And I saw this, I had this, I, I wrote it down. I was going to record it and release it to uh, the public because it was this meditation that I went on where I was sort of, I was on this cliff and I was looking out over this amazing valley and the sun was setting. And it was just beautiful. And I felt like all of my past, everything that had happened in my life up until that point was just behind me. But I was looking very much to the future. And I sort of felt this sort of past part of me just fall away. And then I sort of looked around and I saw these stairs to the right. And I went down these stairs and down into this valley. And there was this it was like a beautiful jungle, like in the Jungle Book. And there was this amazing giant temple that was shaped like a black lotus. And I walked across the leaves, like through this pond. And inside the temple, there was a chair, like a big sort of like sofa. It was beautiful with all cushions. And it was all, it looked very ancient though. And I walked around and there was myself when I was six sitting in the chair. And he was so excited to see me and I was so excited to see him and I hugged him and I was just holding him and I was like, oh my God, I love you so much. And I was like, and I was so excited that I could be with myself hmm. and I was, I was just this great feeling. And then I turned around and my sort of, it was like my older self came in. It was like, it was like me in the future and it was so weird it was so weird I was taller how did I get taller I was like more I was just like this better looking version of myself and I came in and we hugged and I was like this is brilliant and then my 16 year old self came in and he was shy and sort of felt awkward about it but we were like it's okay and we hugged him and it was so good and then this old man came in and it was me. Oh. I couldn't, it was this incredible meditation. Like this, it was so weird. And he came in and we all went over to him and gave him a hug. And he was sort of like teary and just, he was beautiful. He was like my grandfather. And, and we turned, I turned around and the younger version of myself was holding a baby. And it was me. Oh. And, we went over and he gave the baby to the old man and the, well, the old here, I should say. And he said, stop worrying. He said, just don't worry. He's like, you'll get there or you won't. He said, it doesn't matter. He said, you'll get, he said, just don't worry about it. Just go, just keep going, just keep going. And then just one by one, they all like floated up and I remained there with the two older versions of myself. The younger ones all sort of just floated into the light one by one. And it was, and my 13 year old self didn't really want to go. And I was like, it's okay. You can go. You'll be fine. And it was, I came out of it. I had 
I was just totally amazed that my mind had taken me on this incredible journey. So from a psychiatrist's perspective, maybe you were right on the money with, with when you said you're going into some deep, deep, maybe it was my trip to India that sort of led mm. me to where I am now, where I'm just going, it's okay. And that's the conversation. I didn't even think about I haven't thought about that for a long time. You reminded me today. Oh, well, that sounds just so powerful. I still feel scared sometimes to to be brave. I still feel I still feel protective over um, parts of myself or worried about judgment or worried about what people are going to say and that that's not fair. And then I say to myself, it's just let it go. Like, just relax, go with it. It's mm. fine. It'll work out. Mm. Look, yeah, I, I think we spend a lifetime trying to find peace with our many selves. Yeah. Every one of us. Hugh, thank you very much for sharing your, you know, your, your story and your thoughts about what it means to live and celebrate humanity and not sexuality and to take the labels away so we can just bring our values to the front. We've got one final question we like to ask all of our guests on this show. Life can be pretty challenging and confusing and complicated for the best of us. Who do you think is doing human well? I Look, you know what? I, I, honestly, this is going to sound like an annoying answer, but let me be that person. I think for everyone that's listening to this, that when you li- look at yourself as a human and you accept that you're flawed and that you will make mistakes, but you will also get some things right, but when you're being easy on yourself, then you're being a good human because I think we're too hard on ourselves. We make way too much of it. We listen too much to people that tell us who we should be. And when you start allowing yourself just to be you, just to be human for a day, or maybe you make the choice to be human for the rest of your life, then you are being a good human. Then you're doing really good human. And I encourage everyone to take it easy on themselves and take it easy on other people. Mm. Let it go. Mm. Don't worry about it. Beautiful. Think about what important. Yeah, maybe Frank Sinatra had it right when he said, I did it my way. I think so. He said, nice and easy does it every time. <laughs> like the man said one more time. Nice and easy does it every time. Beautiful. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 